a theology of worship. It is very brief. Let me be more specific. A theology of corporate, public worship. This will be very brief. We do not have time to deal with it exhaustively. Today, it is a massive subject, but I think I'm going to try to hit the high points and share with you my understanding and what I would like to see and I think where we have... Uh, how this church has transformed and changed and perhaps how we can continue to change to better honor our God and Savior. So before we look at what should worship look like, let's look, let's build a foundation of worship. And if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. I think this is going to provide for us a great summary and a great um, key as to our purpose in worship. So Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to begin with verse 10. I'll read through verse 12 and um, then spend a little bit of time Establishing a foundation, establishing a basis for our gathering together. And it goes like this, and you're familiar with this story. This is Moses before the burning bush. And so God is now speaking, and he says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So the first thing we should probably note, and I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time with this, but we should note that in this command to Moses to bring the people out, God promises that he will be with Moses. And the presence of God amongst the people of God is foundational to our understanding of worship. In fact, throughout the scripture, we have what is sometimes referred to as the covenant formula. And the covenant formula is this. I will be their God and they will be my people. And we see that all the way through scripture. We actually begin to see it in the book of Genesis. And if we see it in the book of Genesis, guess where we see it last? We see it in the book of Revelation, very late. I think it's in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is God's promise from beginning to end. I am going to establish a people for myself. I will be their God. That is, I will be present amongst them. I will work among them. I will not abandon them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so we begin this idea of worship with the very foundation of God being our God and we being his people. What this means is that God calls forth a people, a group, a congregation that is distinct and separate. It is not God just being with everybody everywhere at all times. There is a distinct people of God. God has always worked through a people. Always. He's always worked through a congregation of people. That's why the church is a congregation. The church is not you and I individually. We make up the church. But we, as an I individually, am not the church. I am 
gather together with a whole bunch of other people and we, as a corporate body, make up the church and God works through a group of people. And this is, he says, I'm going to be with you. And so it is a community then through whom God will display His splendor and majesty. And He said to Moses, he said this, Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bring the people out of Egypt and for this purpose, to worship Me. That's the reason. I want you to bring them out for the purpose of worship. This idea of worship in this particular passage of text is, is interesting. Well, actually, the whole Hebrew understanding of worship is, is, is interesting. And I, I, I won't go into to great detail here, but this is a Hebrew word that simply means to serve. And in fact, in other places, you'll see this word, and, it, and it's translated to serve. When it's used in reference to serving God, it is a joyous celebration of participating in what God is doing or it is in um, humbling ourselves before God. But it's also used in, in the idea of servitude or even slavery. I'm going to bring you out of slavery to be my servants. In other words, having served the slaves in Egypt... You are now redeemed to serve Yahweh, your God. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem you from the Egypt, from the house of slavery. But not just for any reason. I'm going to bring you into my service. And you will now be my servants, my people, and I will be with you. So perhaps we should try to understand what, and perhaps provide a definition of worship. And there's a zillion out there. But I think Ward Wearsby gave us a a nice, concise, uh, working definition. I think I put it up on the the screen. And uh, one more. There we go. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. I thought that was a nice, concise good definition of what it means to worship. Worship is our response of all that we are. Every part of us. Mind, emotion, will, body. It is our response to what God, to who God is and what He says. And so God tells Moses, I want you to bring the people out of Egypt and the reason I want you to bring them out of Egypt is so that they will serve me and worship me. Unless you think I'm just um, cherry-picking a particular passage of Scripture, let me just point you to the fact that in Exodus chapter 4, 23, chapter 7, 16, 8, 1, 8, 20, 9, 1, 9, 13, 10, 3, 10, 7, and 8, 10, 11, 10, 24, 10, 26, and Exodus 12, 31, all say the same thing. I am redeeming you for a purpose. I am redeeming you to serve me. I am redeeming you for the purpose of worship. I know sometimes we think that God redeemed them so that He could bring them into the promised land. That is certainly part of the reason. But, primary to all of this is that you will be a people who worship Me, who serve Me, who become My servants. And so, a brief summary of this text is that we have been redeemed to worship. Have you ever thought about that? 
You are redeemed to worship. We are redeemed to respond to God with all to respond to all that God is and all that God says. We are to respond to Him with all of our being. That is what we have been redeemed to do. This is not just an Old Testament concept. We see continuity of this idea all the way through uh, the New Testament. In fact, why don't you turn with me to the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. Hebrews 10, 19. I'll give you a couple minutes to turn there. See, since I was uh, prepared and that's my message, I kind of flagged my Bible so I can turn there real quickly. So I'll give you guys a little bit of time. You weren't ready for this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. goes like this. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. Since we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, what are we to do? Draw near. Let us draw near to a holy God. Because you have been cleansed, because you are the people of God, now let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We have been redeemed to worship and draw near to God. Chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Since we have... Since we receive a kingdom which Jesus Christ inaugurated by his death and resurrection, and it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken since we have been, since this kingdom has been inaugurated, what is our response? We are to offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so God has redeemed people to draw near to him and he will draw near to them and we do so for the purpose of worship. Very brief summary very brief foundation of the idea of worship. Now I would like to spend a little bit of time dealing with worship here at the church on Randall Place and let me set a couple limitations before I do because there are probably at least three aspects by which we understand worship. The first aspect of, that we might understand worship is the all of life is worship aspect. You probably all heard that. All of everything that we do, that everything you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So even the, the smallest, the minutest, the, the most mundane things like eating and drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so this whole, this idea of all of our life is worship is, I affirm 100% that when we walk out this door, what you do when you go to lunch and when you when you engage in, in, in your job, when you, when you uh, 
start back at your work tomorrow. I, I pray that your, what you do in your job is an act of worship. That if you are in business, you treat, if you have employees, you treat them in a God-honoring way. You treat your customers, you sell your customers a good product at a fair price. And so glorify God. That is your acceptable act of worship. Everything you do in your life is to be an act of worship. So I understand this aspect of all of life is worship. I'm just not going to talk about that. I also understand a second aspect of worship, and we might call this your private worship. That is, that time where you go into your closet by yourself and you plead before God and you pray before God. Perhaps you see, see Him and you read Scripture and it's probably akin or it emulates Jesus going away by Himself to get alone with the Father. I understand private worship and I 100% affirm that if you do not have a time where you escape by yourself to get alone with your Heavenly Father, I would exhort you now in this new year, make that a priority. I think that's an aspect of worship. I'm just not going to talk about that today. The reason I say these things is because oftentimes when we talk about corporate worship, somebody will inevitably come and say, yeah, but I believe that all of life is worship. I do too. I believe that too. All right? I'm affirming all of that. I'm not saying it's an either-or situation. I'm simply saying that for this message today, I want to talk about corporate, public worship. What happens when the church gathers? Are we clear on that? I believe that God clearly, clearly wants His people to gather as a congregation, expressing that they are the body of Christ as we worship together. Look at Psalm 111.1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. We see very clearly that God desires that we would gather together as a corporate entity, as a group of individuals gathered together in a place to give praise and worship to God. And of course the famous one in the New Testament, Hebrews 10.25, which talks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, that we are a corporate body. We gather together. This church on Randall Place, I know when you go out of here where the church spreads, but there comes a place and a time where the church gathers together in a single place at a particular time for the express purpose of worshiping God. And so there is a time when the people of God gather at the invitation of God for the purpose of worshiping God. So we will spend a little bit of time dealing with this idea of corporate public worship and what I believe should take place and how we should constitute it. The, uh, a, a British philosopher by the name of um, Roger Scruton said this, and he's not a believer, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, Roger Scruton, Scruton said this, he said, the best way to understand what people really believe about God is to observe them at worship. And I thought that was pretty insightful. The best way to understand what people actually believe about God is to observe them in worship. And he made a practice of observing people in worship. In other words, what they happen to say in their creeds and their confessions, what they happen to say in their articles of incorporation, and what they happen to say in their statements of faith, and what they happen to have written on their pieces of paper and their covenants with one another are important. But if you really want to know what they believe, 
Watch what they do when they gather together for worship. Then you will see what they really believe about God. I think that's an amazing thing when you look at how worship, in, especially in Western culture, and what we might even call worshiptainment, the idea of, oh, I won't even go there right now. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that's an expression of what they believe about God. Again, their theology, our theology expresses itself in our action. And so I think this, uh, uh, Dr. Scruton is right. Watch what they do, because that will reveal what their theology is. So I'm going to tell you what I think. Where I stand, where I would like to see this church go, perhaps most of this we're, we're probably doing. But I also want to explain why we do what we do. That's one of the things that's changed, at least for me. When I started, it's like I kind of gave some thought, but I never really questioned why do we... We always had a call to worship, but I just did it because that's what the former pastor did and I didn't want to break the rhythm. And it was a nice idea. Why do we have a call to worship? Should we have a call to worship? Why do we sing? Why do we read scripture? Why do we do these things? So, let's talk a little bit about corporate public worship. The first aspect of corporate public worship is that it is to be theocentric. That's just a fancy way as to mean that it is to be God-centered. Worship is centered and aimed at the glory of God. Here's the interesting thing. Worship is an end in and of itself. And this is very different from just about every aspect of the Christian faith. For instance, let's take fellowship. Why do we fellowship? We fellowship that we might edify and be edified. So fellowship is not an end in and of itself. The idea of, of encouraging and strengthening one another might be the end. Fellowship is not a, an end in and of, of itself. <clears throat> listening to, to, to a sermon or listening to the scripture reading is not an end in and of itself. We do so so we might gain knowledge of our Heavenly Father. Stewardship is not an end in and of itself, but worship, unlike everything else that goes on, is an end in of itself. Only worship should not be done as a means to achieving something else. I think that's really important. Only worship should be done not as a means of achieving something else or gaining something else. And that's really important because how many people come into church thinking... Let me say this. How many have heard people say, well, I don't go to that church because I don't get anything out of it? We've all heard it. Perhaps we've all even said it. But worship is not, has nothing to do with getting anything out of anything. Worship itself is the end in and of itself. Worship is the goal. And so, first of all, worship is God-centered. And so the focus then is not, if it is God-centered, then the focus is not on the congregation. And maybe even more relevant today, it is not on the seeker. Well, let me define that a little bit better. Give me my little bias. I think God's the only one who seeks. God seeks the loss. Mankind has fallen. He does not seek God. God seeks the lost. So I guess we would be a seeker-friendly church if our goal is to worship. 
the God who seeks us. So our goal then is not to focus on the seeker. Corporate worship is for God's people. It is only God's people who can worship in spirit and truth. Only God's people can worship. Everything else is idolatry. Everything else. If you are not a child of God, you cannot worship Yahweh in spirit and truth. Non-Christians, what that means then is that non-Christians are welcome and encouraged to hear the word of God as the people of God gather. Because I believe that as they hear the God, it's in the, the word of God, it's an effectual means of conversion, but our, our overall design of a worship service is not to appeal to the seeker or to the unbeliever. Our goal is God-centered. He is the audience. And so therefore, we are... I don't want to say we are not evangelistic. I think that when we share the word of God and we preach the word of God and we declare God's word that God's word is powerful and mighty and will change and convert the unbeliever but when we gather together our purpose is vertical it is not horizontal it is God is the center of all that we do so the first thing about corporate public worship is that it is theocentric the second aspect of corporate public worship is that it is dialogical, which is just a fancy way of saying it's a two-way street. It's a give and take, if you will. Well, maybe not give and take. It's a two-way street. It is a discourse, if you will, between two parties. In other words, in worship, God meets with His people. And we see this in Exodus chapter 19. Um, and we see it actually all the way through Scripture. But Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11 are a really, really good Um, example of this where Moses is up on the mountain and God says go call the people go down and call the people and bring them to the edge of the mountain and then you and the elders come on up and I am going to speak with you and you are going to go down and declare my word to the people that's what's going to happen I'm gathering my people in order for the purpose of speaking to my people and we see this all the way through Scripture. We see it on, uh, in Joshua on the two mountains. And we see, we see uh, it in Ezra as he's reading all day in the rain. He's reading God's Word. God's people have gathered to hear the voice of their God speak to them. So in other words, when we gather together as the the church of God in this place, we gather at God's invitation. God has invited you here today. God has invited you to come into my presence and I will speak to you. I have something to say to you. Welcome. What an amazing thought that is. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm going to go to church and I hope God shows up. I think it's the opposite. God says, I'm glad you made it today. I've been waiting for you. I invited you here today. You come at my bidding. You come at my request. You're here because God, in His gracious mercy, says, come here, i got something I want to tell you. This is worship. 
And God now speaks to us through invocations. He speaks to us through the reading of God's word. He speaks to us in the sermons. He speaks to us in benediction. And I'm going to unpack this in a little bit. So, but I said that it's dialogical. That is, it's a two-way street. God invites us here so that he can speak to us. But that's not the end. That would be sufficient. But it's dialogical. That is, there is a response then from the people of God to the word of God. And how do we respond to God? Well, one way we respond to God is through song. We sing praises to God. You ever wonder, you ever wonder why do we sing? I do. I ask silly questions like, why do we even sing? Why do I, I mean, what purpose is that? It is a response to God. We respond to God through prayer. We respond to God in confession. That we confess our sins. We respond to God with awe. I don't know if I've got this verse. Yeah. Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him. We worship God. We respond to God in awe of all that He has done. And so we see that worship when we gather together is aimed at the glory of God. It is dialogical, but it is also biblical. That means that the whole service is to teach us about God. That means then that our prayers, our songs, our preaching must be biblical. We read, we pray, we sing, we preach, and we see the Bible when we gather together. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what I mean by that. So when we read, we read Scripture. When we pray, we pray God. We pray biblical prayers. When we sing, we sing biblical songs. When we preach, we preach biblical sermons. And when we see, and I'll explain that, we see the Bible what's in the Bible. And so, with that, corporate worship is theocentric. It's aimed at the glory of God. It, it is responsive. That is, there's a give and take. There is a back and forth. And it is grounded in the Bible. So let's talk a little bit then about um, being biblical. And we'll deal with this under the title, The Primacy of God's Word. I truly believe that God's word needs to be primary in what we do. This is how God speaks to us. God speaks through his word. That's how God speaks. This is called a Bible. What else is it called? The word of God. Hence, it is the Word of God. It is God speaking to us. And Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That means, it seems to me, we should be reading the Scripture in our public worship. Not just what we read in the sermon. Right? I'm going to read, I'll read texts in the sermon, especially once we get back into our, our rhythm of, of going through books of the Bible. But, but we read the Scripture, but I think there should be times where we read public reading of scripture 
Devote yourself to this. And I don't know that in Scripture there is any rule or mandate on how much Scripture is to be read. I would assume that those of us who love God's Word cannot be content with only a verse or two. So I think when we read Scripture, it is good that we read blocks of Scripture. Chunks of Scripture. Now, it is my opinion, one of the reasons when we read Scripture, and I don't always put the word on the screen when we read Scripture, and one of the reasons is because I believe it's important for us to hear the Word of God. Just to hear it. That's my own side note on things. But we read God's Word, and we, and I think it's good, like today, we've read from the Old Testament, and we've read from the New Testament. That's important that we read all parts of God's Word. I think it would even be good to have maybe Old Testament, New Testament, and a Gospel. That might even be good. You might have to stay a little bit longer to hear God's Word. But the reading of God's Word is primary in what we do. In our prayers, God's Word should fill our prayers. There's all kinds of different prayers. There's prayer of adoration, there's prayer of confession, there's prayer of illumination. I fear that perhaps the practice of praying God's word has often become neglected. I wonder if sometimes we treat our prayers, and I'll just speak for myself, perhaps we speak, we treat the praying the prayer part of our service. Um, We don't give it the value, perhaps, that we ought to. I'm not saying that we don't value prayer. I guess I'm trying to say this. One day, I'm I'm going through and I'm I'm working through the order of service, right? I'm working through how our worship is going to take place. And, you know, so we... I'll talk about liturgy in a little bit, but I'm I'm looking through it. And I said, okay, so we're going to pray here. And then I said, what am I going to pray? And here's this, what I thought, I thought was ironic. I found myself praying about what to pray. What should I pray, Lord? And I thought, that's an odd thing. I've never done that before. I've never prayed about what to pray. I just get up and say, well, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll just pray. There's nothing wrong with that. But I thought, maybe if I gave thought to what I was going to pray and write it out, and think about it. God, move upon me. What am I going to say to the people when we pray? How am I going to make this a biblical prayer? And fill it with Scripture. There's a great book that every single one of us should have a copy of. And I say that, I don't have a copy of it yet. But every one of us should have a copy of it. And it's called The Valley of Vision. You heard, heard of it? Every single one of us should have a copy of the Valley of Vision. Go home, go to Amazon, or go whatever, and find the Valley of Vision. We should all have a copy of it. <coughs> it's basically, it's just a book of Puritan prayers. That's all it is. Just a book of prayers. And I know people say, oh, well, those are canned prayers. Let me tell you something. You want to learn how to pray? Read prayers. And if you really want to read good prayers, read Puritan prayers. Those guys were hardcore. Whether you agree with their Puritan theology or not, they were hardcore prayers. I 
right? And their prayers were filled with the glory of God and with uh, their powerful, powerful prayers. Oftentimes, pray all um, go to Matthew Henry's website. Matthew Henry is sometimes most known for his uh, Bible commentary, but Matthew Henry ought to be known as a great man, probably one of the greatest men of prayer who's ever lived. And if you go to MatthewHenry.org, it's just a massive resource on prayer. And they're biblical. Everything is scriptural. His prayers are just scripture. That's it. A more modern example would be a little guy by the name of Ken Boa. He has a little book that is wonderful, but it's just scripture. Praying scripture. Praying what God has already said. Our prayers ought to be centered upon the Word of God. And while extemporaneous prayer is important, sometimes I found in myself that it just becomes shallow and repetitious. I find when I just start to pray by my whatever, pray over the offering or pray over the scripture, I find myself praying the same thing over and over and I'm wondering, is this just vain repetition? Why don't I write out my prayers? Why don't I pray? God, show me what to pray. And then write that out. Or perhaps use a resource from great prayers in the past and if they have something that is valuable, pray that prayer. And if nothing else, I'll learn about prayer from men and women who knew prayer. People say, I don't know how to pray. Well, first of all, the Bible's filled with prayers. Read Paul's prayers. Read Jesus as he taught people to pray. Read Nehemiah's prayer. Read Daniel's prayer. There's prayer all the way through the Bible. Help teach you to pray. And then read men and women of God who prayed. But the Word of God should fill our prayers. The Word of God should fill our singing. Our music needs to be scriptural. And this is a task that requires very careful attention. And we have spent a fair amount of time dealing with the songs that we sing to make sure that they are theologically accurate. Even if we like the song and it's catchy and it sings well and it'll get everybody going, but it it lacks theological precision. We've tossed out a few. And here's the, the issue with this. Let me just kind of call I know this can be really subjective because one thing that I think is not theologically precise, you, say, you may think, oh, I think this is a great song. A great example is I hear a lot of people say, we should not sing that song, Shine, Jesus, Shine. They hate that song. I love that song. I see nothing unbiblical about it. Um, but anyways, I know people who just think it's a terrible song to sing in church. Uh, so there is a subjectivity about all of this. But we need to go through and we need to make sure that our songs are theologically precise. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that if it's in your hymn book, it's good. You can go into that hymn book right there and I can find bunch of songs that are terrible and we will not sing them just terrible likewise I can go to that hymn book and find songs that need to be sung in church need to be sung in church 
I don't really care about the century that the song was written. And I'm not as concerned about the style that it was written in or the genre of the song. But is it biblical? Is it grounded in God's Word? Does it convey the truth of God? I think a great modern example, I think, of a great song and a biblical song. We sing it periodically, a Revelation song, right? Straight out of Scripture. That's a great song. What was the one Stevie song last week? Christ is risen from the dead, overcoming death by death. Come away, come away, come rise up from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with Him again. Bam. That's a good song. I think it's fairly recent. That's good music. I see a whole new outcropping of hymn writers. And they're writing really, really good stuff. Really good stuff. There are songs that I like that we, we don't sing because I think they are theologically imprecise. And we've talked about some of those amongst the musicians even though we like even though they they sing good just an example one of the ones we've tossed out even though I personally like the song and I think it's good listening I just don't know that it's right for corporate public worship that's Days of Elijah I like the song and the chorus is really good and it's straight out of scripture but the rest of it is kind of not really true these aren't the Days of Elijah They aren't. And these are not the days of David. Christ came. He established his kingdom. Yes, we are bepraising it. But anyways, that's just... These are not the days of Elijah. These are the days of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And he rules and he reigns. And I know sometimes in singing... There's a whole tradition that says we should just sing the Psalms, and, and I think there's, a, there's some relevance to that. I think that would be wise to not neglect. But if all we do is sing the Psalms, we neglect the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the central figure of the Bible, unless we sing Psalm 22 and a few others. But otherwise, we neglect the whole focus of the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, we see a lot of hymns that Paul inserts into his thing. So hymns were being written about Jesus Christ. We should sing good hymns. Anyways, enough about that. I believe also we should, be, we should see the Word of God. And when we do, when we take the Lord's Supper and when we do baptisms, that is the Word of God visible. We actually see the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. And we see uh, death to the old man uh, being buried and the waters of God's wrath flooding over them and them coming out of them a brand new creation that's the gospel how can you get a better gospel presentation than a baptism oh it's so much better than raising your hand and coming down the aisle isn't it oh man that is the gospel so we should see the word of God and it's present when we take communion And we should preach the Word of God. 
primacy of preaching was brought back by the reformers. Prior to that, the Catholic Church had the Mass, that is the crucifixion of Christ. But the reformers brought back the preaching of the Word of God. And I love this, the Second Helvetic Confession says this, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. In other words, when we hear faithful preaching, we are hearing Christ speak. So the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God because that's all we're preaching is the Word of God. And we are teaching expository preaching. And expository just simply has the idea of exposing or drawing out the meaning that is already there. So sometimes people say, oh, nice sermon. And the reason, if there's a good sermon, if I ever deliver a good sermon, it's simply because the material's already good. I don't have to do anything to it. All i got to do is go in and expose it. See, it's already God's Word. I just need to expose what's already there. And if I do that, you guys think I'm a genius. I'm not a genius. I just went in and looked at what God said. And exposed it. And God speaks. The Word of God is... The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. So our desired response isn't so much that was a great sermon, but the desired response is now I know what that passage means. Now I see God more clearly. Now I see the beauty and the glory of our Heavenly Father more than I ever have. That's a great response. And so the primacy of God's Word in summary is this. As long as I am here, the Word of God will not be lost in the house of God. We will read it, we will pray it, we will sing it, we will see it, and we will preach it. That's what we will do. Let me spend a few moments on liturgy. I know, you know, I don't spend a few minutes on anything. So let me talk a little bit about liturgy. And uh, liturgy is just a, another one of those fancy words, but it just simply means that we have a schedule or an order of service. And, and everybody has an order of service. Every church, no matter how informed, even the Quakers have an order of service. And I know they all gather around in a circle and they wait and they just sit in silent meditation until the Spirit of God moves and then they speak and do stuff. But that's an order of service, right? It's a liturgy. We gather together and we sit around in quiet contemplation until we feel the Spirit of God move and then we begin to do. Then we hear God speak through His Word. But that's a liturgy. I, when, I became, when I became a Christian, the first church first churches I attended were Pentecostal churches. And, you know, we always, I always... Oh, we just move by the Spirit. We don't, we don't have any of that liturgy stuff like those Baptists or like those Presbyterians. Or, that's all formal and this, it's not ruled by the Holy Spirit. And then I found out as I watched and listened, it's like, we have a liturgy too. You know, I kind of knew when things were going to happen. I knew there was... And even at, I guess, at its most basic, we meet at 10 o'clock at a particular place on a particular day. That's probably the most basic liturgy, if you will. But... We don't all sit around in our individual homes and pray about when we gather. We gather together at a certain time, at a certain place, on a certain day. And, uh, and certain things happen. And 
but we have a liturgy. Now, here at the church on Randall Place, we have a liturgy. I, I trust that we would hold it lightly, but it still must be rich, and it must be grounded, and it must be biblical. But we have a liturgy. That is, we have an order of service, and um, I would often give my order of service to Suzanne when I was doing it high now on Saturdays. I get an email, comes across, here's the order of service. This is our liturgy for tomorrow. Here's some components that I think are necessary in our liturgy. The first one is that I believe it's important that we have an invocation that, or even a call to worship. And an invocation is just simply an asking of God for his presence. Uh, or a call to worship. I think it's important that we call people to worship. Now's the time to worship. Okay, we're all milling about. We're all doing our stuff. We've all come. Now. Now, folks, God has called us. Now, prepare your hearts. We're going to worship. I think that's, that makes sense to me. Now's the time to worship. I think there's even a song that goes like that. I think there's even a psalm. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the sheep of His pasture. Come, let us, it's a call to worship. Come, let us bow down. There should be some time, a time of adoration. That is where we are singing or reading or talking about God's great attributes. All of these things can be done done in song. They can be done in a responsive reading. They can be done through scripture. They can be done in a variety of ways. But there should be a time where we talk about the greatness of God's character. We extol his eternity. We we shout his, his mercies. We talk about the attributes of God. I think there should be a time of thanksgiving. In fact, probably one of the greatest problems with the Israelites when they came out of the bondage was that they were not thankful. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, in condemning people, he says, they did not know God and they were not thankful. And again, that can be in a psalm. It can be in a scripture. It can be in a prayer. There should be a time of confession. I read an article this week that said this is an aspect that has been lost in most churches today, a time of confession. And I know we do it before the Lord's Supper. I think it needs to be done every week. When we gather together, we should confess our sins. How can we come before a holy God having not confessed our sins? That just doesn't make any sense. The Bible's filled with confession. And here's the other aspect of confession. I think at the end of a confession, we should concluded with assurance that is that those who confess their sins are, have been forgiven that God has cast us so forgive a confession and assurance I think are really important that we just don't confess our sins because that's not the end of the story the end of the story is God assures us that our sins are forgiven but how is it that the people of God can gather at the invitation of God and not somehow at some time saying God I'm a sinner have mercy on me will you forgive me of my sins because not one of us came in here having not sinned this week. Not one of us came in here worthy of the invitation that God extended to us. None of us did. So how can we not say, God, have mercy on me? And then, how can we not assure one another of the fact that our merciful God did exactly what He said He was going to do? And He cast our sins behind His back and He said, come into my presence. I think that's important. I think there should be a time of affirmation of faith, just simply saying what we believe, whether that's like the reading of the Nicene Creed or some passage of text that extols, this is what we believe. 
that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Perhaps something like that. This is our affirmation. This is what we believe. It could be in a song. Again, it could be in a prayer. It could be in... Um, it could be formal. It could be a creed from, or, or, or a confession. I think proclamation, and that's kind of what I'm doing now, proclamation of God's Word. And finally, I think it's good that we go out with a blessing. We should bless one another. What this does is when we have this, then we, we don't fall into the trap, I don't think, of what I call the worship sandwich. And I try to avoid that. The worship sandwich is just this, that there's a block of music and then a sermon and then another block of music. That's the worship sandwich. And I'm not sure how we got there. But if we have a worship sandwich, we don't have any reading of Scripture. We don't have much prayer. So we avoid the worship sandwich. Not that singing is bad. You should sing. And we do sing. Another, so those are, the, I think, some necessary components of worship. And we try to incorporate them. We don't always do it perfectly, and maybe not every week every single one of those is in there. But I think that it's important that we give thought to what do we do when we gather together. Why do we gather? To worship. What do we do when we gather? Well, we should call people to worship. We should adore God. We should give Him thanks. We should confess our sins. We should affirm what we believe. We should proclaim God's, God's Word. And we should bless one another. That sounds like a good worship service to me. Another aspect of our liturgy is the idea of simplicity. In other words, what I'm talking about is avoiding novelty that draws attention to the service and the leaders. That is, we refrain from designing a church service, a liturgy that manipulates feelings and emotions. I believe if God is present, God will speak to the areas of our lives. I do not need to manipulate your emotions. I don't do a whole lot of altar calls. One of the reasons I don't do a whole lot of altar calls, by the way, you'll never see an altar call in the Bible, do you? But, but I don't. I, I think a lot of times they're manip- manipulative. But I will say, if God has spoken to you, my wife and I are sitting here on the front row. Come and speak to us. If, you want to, uh, if God is speaking to you and he has convicted your heart and you want to enter into a new life with Christ, come and speak with us and we will share with you what it means to be born again a new creature of God. But I don't do a whole lot of altar calls. It doesn't mean I never will. Not a whole lot. I love this quote. It's lengthy. This is from C.S. Lewis. But it's lengthy, but it's worthy. Here's what Lewis said. He said, The most perfect church service would be the one we are most unaware of. Our attention would be on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself. And thinking about worship is a different thing from worshiping. Tis mad idolatry that makes the service greater than the God. A still worse thing may happen. Novelty may fix our attention not even on the service but on the celebrant. There is really some excuse for the man who said, I wish they'd remember that the charge to Peter was feed my sheep, not try experiments on my rats or even teach my performing dogs new tricks. Lewis had a way with words. <laughs> Novelty may fix our attention, not even on the... First of all, it may attempt to fix our attention on the service. And so... I'm not opposed to aids to worship or even lighting or all of these things. But when they come to the place where then we focus on the lighting and the fog machine and, and all of this other stuff that's going on, we have now focused ourselves no longer on God, but the way the service is, is, is ordered. And worse yet, then it focuses our attention on the celebrant. In other words, God's no longer the focus. 
you and I, the people on the stage, the friends, the sage on the stage, and the musicians, and all of that becomes the focus of attention. And we have set up idolatry in the house of God. And so I think simplicity is a good way to go. That we keep things relatively simple. Under this idea of simplicity is this understanding of undistracted quality. That is, everything we do should be to the greatest of our ability. Which means that the instruments need to be in tune, musicians need to practice, and be prepared to the best of their ability. That means that I need to be prepared to teach a sermon. I need to be prepared. That means whatever we do, people in back in the sound need to be able to do this to the best of their ability we never have required perfection you guys would have gotten rid of me a long time ago I wouldn't be here 15 years if you required perfection I mess up my messages all the time All right, and sometimes we make mistakes but we come prepared and we come ready to do our absolute best and we have people come up who are learning how to do ministry and they may do a poor job in speaking or they may make a mistake in the music but they are being trained to be to lead people in, in, in worship and so we allow for imperfections but everything we do so even the passing out of bulletins it's not some throwaway issue how can I be the best bulletin how do I greet somebody in such a way that they come onto this property and they know that they are welcome and God has invited them here how do I do that I remember Scott was doing a uh, <clears throat> Announcements for a while, and then Simone is doing announcements, and both of them um, wanted a lot of detail that normally I wouldn't give when I did my announcements. I'm thinking to myself, what's the big deal? It's just an announcement. God said, no, it's not just an announcement. This is people preparing. Even the announcements should be done to the glory of God to the best of our ability how can I come up here and be prepared to share with you what's going on in this corporate fellowship everything we should do should be of undistracting quality and so I mean I just read another article this week that talked about why is nobody singing anymore and it's talking about some big churches where people are not there's no longer corporate singing and the reason why was this person put forth was because the music has become so loud and the subwoofers are... And by the way, I like loud music. And I like to feel the bass. If I hear the bass, that's good. But feeling the bass, that's something else. That's great. I love that. However, if it comes to the place where it it becomes so... It prohibits us from actually singing the songs. Then you need to tone it down. Turn the volume down. Turn the bass down. Shut it all down and sing a cappella. And this particular person said, I'm not singing anymore. And it's because, well, so they went on. And I think undistracting quality, that what we do does not distract from the God who has bid us to enter into his presence. I think also there should be reverence. That is, we should be dignified. This does not mean that we should be joyless or void of emotion. In fact, I think we should have an emotional response to being in the presence of God. And so things like joy and fear and hope and faith and desire and anger and grief are all part of worship. 
reverence, though, calls for us to be to to do these things in moderation. God calls us to do things orderly. It's not a free for all. Finally, worship should edify God's people. I think corporate worship is, and this is how corporate worship is distinguished from the personal or all of life is worship, is that it edifies other people. A passage that I read in 1 Timothy 4.13 um, is an act of emboldening another to belief or a course of action. 1 Corinthians 14 demands that corporate worship be intelligible to the hearer. That means there needs to be, um, if it's intelligible to the hearer, it should build them up, it should strengthen them. So, I'll conclude with this. I know this was an especially long message, but you guys never care about that. I might get teased a little bit, but in the end, you guys are always a great blessing. You don't say 27 minutes and then we're cutting you off. I'll summarize with this, or I'll conclude with this, that you have been redeemed to worship. It's primary. You've been redeemed to worship. To worship is to describe worth to God because He is worthy and it is a, a, an end in and of itself. Corporate worship should have God as the focus, not the worshiper, not the speaker, not the musician, not the bulletin hander-outer, and not the announcer. Corporate worship should have God as the focus. God's word should be prevalent. It should permeate everything that we do here. I believe that when we meet with God at his bidding, we will be affected. How can you not come into the presence of Almighty God and not be affected somehow? Certainly that will be emotionally or intellectually or spiritually. Somehow you will be affected by God. How can you not? Everybody who entered into the presence of Jesus went away changed. They may have gone away hardened, but they did go away changed. Everybody who entered into the presence of Christ changed. The woman who touched the hem of his garment, she was changed. The religious leaders hardened their hearts. They were changed. Everybody who entered into the presence of Christ walked away different. Affected, I should say. They all walked away affected. I would hope that as we come into the presence of Christ and hear the word of Christ, that we walk away affected. So as we enter this new year, those are my thoughts on worship and what it means to gather together. Why do we gather? For whom do we gather? What's included when we gather? That is how I understand things. And that is why we do things the way we do them. We don't always do them perfectly. But that's the goal. That's the target that we're shooting at. Let's stand and let's pray.